Well, Josh, uh, happy Halloween almost. Happy Halloween Eve. Is Halloween and Eve All Hallows Eve or is that All Hallows Eve is before Halloween? No, because uh, it is the 31st because I think the 1st of November is a Catholic holiday or used to be. Ah, uh, yeah. Remember, remember the 1st of November. Mm-hmm. That's certainly one of the chants. That's what all the Catholics are saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all well, the Shakespearean Catholics. There's this type of thing. Uh, I don't know how to introduce it really, but in certain cultures and in Japan, um, it's not common. It's kind of like astrology, uh, but people will take blood types and then assign personalities like okay. that's why you have a personality. Okay. Um, I kind of might I, get down with this more than astrology. <laughs> it makes more sense, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's actually coursing so it's, through could, your veins. Could, could actually be like tied to genetic information. Um, so there's different things. There's like one main group that in Japan has perpetuated this um, stereotyping or personality typing or whatever. Um, they claim that it only makes up 25% of your personality. Okay. Uh, because you get, uh, you know, half from one parent and half from the other parent. So then combine two halves and that equals one quarter. Right, right. Uh, so the different types are obviously the ABO blood types. Um, a quick rundown is type O people are fresh vegetables uh, because it, appears there's no, you know, antigen on it. Uh, type A people are pickles. Uh, type B are boiled vegetables. And then type AB are boiled pickles. Um, <laughs> of these types, though, there's different, different things. Like the AB blood type has a light attachment to life, uh, long for their role in society and a secure life. Um their job performance is managing everything with careful and with a careful and capable person, uh, skillful in design, things like that. So I actually um, went through all of these blood types. And are you ready to learn what I think your blood type is based off of your personality? This would be great to know because I don't think I even remember my blood type. Okay, so this is going to be this is going to land. Yep. Um. So I think drum roll, please. Dig it down. Your AB, because AB. Uh, Josh is efficient in work. He got health insurance at the age of like 17. Um, <laughs> has a strong emphasis on hobbies in his private life. A rational thinker and superior in criticism. He can understand the main point of something quickly and see the angles of argumentation. He can be both calm and sentimental, sometimes when looking towards the past. He doesn't care too much, though, about the future and the past. And he has imaginative hobbies. Okay. Okay. What are the downsides though? Those all sound like like positive, you know, characteristics. Like, do I uh am I prone to like alcoholism or you know, <laughs> what, what 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 are what are what are the negative side effects of being A B? Or are we just going positive? They don't have too many negatives. The thing that this is actually used for a ton is uh matching ah 
Yes. Like finding a mate. Um, so the, let's see, I've got this chart here. They call it affinity. Um, so your relationship. So the AB blood type, uh, B and A can easily have a great conversation. B type feels that the rational thought of AB type is of sound thinking. So B can be most comfortable with a partner of AB. But if B's type of pace in life and B's type of this is a translated site, so it's kind of types of whim confronted each other. So if your personalities don't match, <laughs> your uh, there whims. will be a big misunderstanding. <laughs> you're also uh, opposite to O. So it's either you're going to appreciate that you both complement each other, but if you both have a weakness in the same point, it's going to cause bigger friction. Uh, so so we really need you? to know Nikki's blood type here. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. What what are you? Do you know your blood? Uh, type? I also have no clue. <laughs> What's never ending to find the beginning that came before everything? Like kids with Dakotas discover the wonder in the ordinary. donated blood lots of times going back to like high school and i think they tell you i I just it's one of those things where people probably told me and i just never committed it to memory or and i don't ever remember like uh when you go to the doctor's office they're like oh yeah and what's your blood type i don't ever remember them asking me that they don't ask me and you know i was i gave blood um did a blood test last year still haven't gone to the doctor this year um and on like the results they don't have it like online yeah yeah wouldn't I've, that be I've something to just put yeah i've looked for this on my baylor health app that sh- where like every diagnostic test has been done and i can see all the results of them going back forever and like nothing lists like what the blood type is so i mean i guess they don't have to run that test it doesn't really matter for your or maybe health. maybe we don't have a blood type could be i know um i think my mom knows my blood type but uh fat chance i'll be asking her Ooh, yeah um yeah it's that's weird because nikki and i were having this conversation uh, a couple weeks ago and she doesn't know hers either and so she asked her mom and i think her mom told her but we also like always take those types of questions with a grain of salt because who knows <laughs> if her mom's remembering accurately or just is remembering something she dreamt or whatever. Yeah. So I don't know. I guess what um, explain to me what the blood types are because I've always been very confused by this. 
Like I know you yeah. can't transfuse between the two different types, and I know that there's like a fun medical history of trying to figure out how blood transfusions work and different people dying on the table because you couldn't figure it out. It goes back to like the early 1900s where they were trying to figure this out for surgeries. But yeah, I exactly how like the typing works and why the certain things are incompatible. I don't understand it. It's kind of crazy because it's it's one of those things. And this is why I really dove into it so much, because it is it comes down to like one element being different, essentially. Okay. Um, so this was discovered in 1900. An Austrian physicist was like mixing vials of blood together. And he noticed that human blood and animal blood mixing will coagulate. And then he noticed that blood mixed with different patients will also coagulate in the same way. So he was kind of baffled at this. So he essentially decided there was a way to separate out. You have an A type, a B type, and a C type. And the, for example, like the A will not coagulate with A. Mm -hmm. uh, it will coagulate, coagulate with B, uh, but it won't coagulate with C. And okay. this, as we now know, is sort of the A, B, and O blood types. The thing that's specific to like the ABO system and there's, okay, so that that uh, designation is focusing on the antigens, like the protein markers mm -hmm. on your red blood cells. We have, I think the count is like over 400 different types of protein markers on our blood cells. Yeah. That that was so, uh, that was a daunting part of the research when I started <laughs> doing red blood cells. Is like, well, you know, we could just talk about these things generally. I'm not going to look this up anymore. <laughs> yeah. The, the the weird but cool thing about it is most of everybody has like the same ones when it comes to all of those other antigens, <clears throat> but the the ABO and then also the RH, which I'll talk about in a minute, are the ones most likely to cause an immune response. And essentially what it means is, say I have an A blood type. Uh, that means I have a specific protein um, that has gal-N-acetyl, which is a nitrogen acetyl group uh, that is connected with galactosamine. So it's just, you have this protein and out on the outside, you have a specific type of sugar that has a nitrogen bonded to one of the carbons. And then that nitrogen is bonded to an acetyl group, which is a carbon bound to another carbon and a double bound oxygen. This is not super important, but just know that like it's, bound to a nitrogen that has a, a couple other elements on it. Um, so that would be type A blood group. Your body, your immune system recognizes that and is like, this is my blood. Um, something that happens during development, your immune system forming is like, okay, I'm going to recognize all this stuff around me. Mm -hmm. Whenever you have an A blood type, 
that means your body creates antibodies for anything that is not an A blood type. Mm -hmm. Um, So if it recognizes anything that has, say, a B blood type, it will say this is totally different. Uh, I don't like it. And the antibodies start to literally connect together the red blood cells that have B type to them. Oh. So this is why it coagulates. So they like is making little clumping, little clots, little clusters of clots. Yeah, and this is why it's dangerous because you suddenly all throughout your body because the blood will start coursing through immediately if you get a transfusion of the wrong type of blood. You start having blood clots all over your body, mm. like almost instantly, like in your brain, yeah, in your lungs. If, yeah, if it reaches your heart or your brain, you're fucked. Yeah. So. The the reason I point out that it's just a nitrogen group bound to that oxygen or that carbon uh, is because the B, uh, B blood type, the that same carbon only has an oxygen bound to it. Okay. Like, that's the whole difference is you either have a nitrogen or an oxygen. Just the, on the very end of the molecular geometry you know, lattice of framework here. <laughs> the The thing that causes them to not play nice together is the difference between a nitrogen and an oxygen. Yeah, um, two elements that are side by side, right? Yeah, on the uh, and make on up the... the majority of the of the atmosphere <laughs> and the air you breathe. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and then you have the O blood type, and it just doesn't have that sugar on it. So, the cool thing about O blood type is because you don't have that uh, marker, your blood can be given to anybody because it's not going to have either the A or B, which would be rejected by the recipient. So that's why O is universal donor. Mm -hmm. But does that mean O can receive A or B if they need it? No. uh, O has antibodies for both A and B, so it cannot receive from Uh anyone that has A, B, or AB. So O can give to anybody, but O can only receive O. Yeah. And if you're AB blood type, you can receive anybody's blood. Okay. As far as the ABO system goes. And while this is, you know, good to know, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's it's cool just because, again, it comes down to those tiny, tiny little things. Um, but we've all heard like the you know, I'm A minus or A positive or whatever. Um, that plus or minus refers to a whole other category of, of you know, antigens that you need to know about. And those are the rhesus antigens named after the rhesus monkey that they were first identified in. And the plus minus only refers to one of those proteins. It only refers to the D protein. There are actually 61 proteins in the RH system, (laughs) but we just have most of them, like 99.9% of the population has the VAL RH antigen. So it doesn't matter. Like we don't have to care about that. The D one will cause an immune response if you get the wrong one. But the, go ahead. No, No, you're good. The RH antigen is, um, so whenever like a baby is born, the obviously they get the blood type as a mix of the parents. Uh, 
Yeah. Um, o is recessive. So if you have one parent that's type A and one parent that's type O, the baby will be type A. Um, that's how you also get AB because both A and B are dominant. So you get both of those together. Now, I've heard that this is not related to research that I did this week, but in the past, I've read stuff like about miscarriages and mm -hmm. specific women's bodies will have an immune response to the, you know, new fertilized um, egg that they're carrying. And because you're saying that this is an immune response also that's part of the blood, I wonder, could it be like... Uh, mom's type a and her immune system attacks the newborn fertilized egg because or new fertilized egg because it's going to have a slightly different blood type and the body's like well fuck that we're getting rid of this it's not so much the abo that comes down to the rh okay. which is the um this one protein in this system so if an RH minus mother is going to give birth to an RH positive child. The, I'll talk about like birth first. Um, as long as the mother has never received a blood transfusion before, um, I don't think most people receive blood transfusions. You know, that's like usually you had a traumatic like injury. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, as long as they haven't received RH positive blood before, the first birth can usually go off without a hitch. The there's, you know, obviously whenever a child is born, there's a lot of blood and the exchange of blood would then prime the mother's immune system to recognize RH positive. Mm -hmm. So being RH negative means you don't have RH positive antibodies until you come into contact with RH positive. And then your body learns it. Then your body learns it. Then uh, if you had a second child that was also RH positive, the mother can die because her body starts you know, going through this major immune response and it overcompensates whenever it's an RH protein immune response and attacks your own body. So that one is like very, very severe. Mm -hmm. um, they have drugs to try and help this out. Now, when you're talking about like miscarriages and stuff, um, I don't I don't know if it's only specific to the RH, but this is the one that has like a lot of the research into it. The fetus, you know, there's like around 28 weeks, there starts to be exchange of blood um, between like the placenta and everything. So the uh, mother's RH minus does come into contact with the RH positive uh, baby's blood. Um, and that can mean that the, the mother's body and immune system goes and attacks the fetus. And mm. this is like a pretty big cause of miscarriages and stillbirths because the fetus, when it's not developed fully yet, um, gets attacked very aggressively by the immune system. Now, there was, um, and this is called hemolytic disease of the newborn. Um, I think as many as 14% of affected fetuses are stillborn and 50% of live births result in uh, neonatal death or brain injury. Yeah. So it's a very serious, you know, 
issue, uh, but they've been able to develop a type of drug that essentially goes, you, you give an intramuscular injection around 28 weeks to the mother, and it essentially goes and attaches to her RH antibodies, like blocking them up. Okay. Um, one shot lasts like about 12 weeks. So you, you get one shot and then they usually, I think, give you another one like right before the birth or a little bit after the birth to protect the mother. Um, but yeah, so it's they have developed drugs and that's actually how I ran into the Wikipedia page for that guy that's is a Wikipedia page for being a blood donor. <laughs> that um, was nuts. <laughs> you're so famous. Well, I mean, you sh- if you're this blood donor, you should have a Wikipedia page just for being a blood donor. Yeah, that's true. Um, this James Harrison guy, I think he's in Australia, um, but his blood was actually used because he has, uh, I think, like very strong RH, like, uh, antibodies. So his blood was used to develop this drug. Um, but he was also a guy that at the age of 14 had major chest surgery and needed a blood transfusion. So he realized how important blood was to saving his life. So he donated blood every opportunity he had for his, I mean, until he was legally no longer allowed to. Yeah. It's a weird age requirement. Australia doesn't allow you to donate blood after 81 years old <laughs> it yeah. seems like you just they just picked a number out of a jar <laughs> like, it really does what happens at 80 between 80 and 81 that makes your blood no longer viable i don't know but australia has figured that out i guess <laughs> i'll talk about adrenochrome in a minute huh <laughs> um but this so the the drug is really cool um the other thing with rh before i'm done with uh, blood typing is there's one more type of blood in the RH system that is crazy to know, uh, and that is called RH null. And that means this person has no RH proteins. They have none of the, like they're, they're RH minus, but for all 61 of them, this is so rare that there are only 43 people on earth known to have this blood type do they just have like no immune response no they have all of the immune only responses. immune response so like everything <laughs> yeah. they come in contact with their immune system goes haywire it goes haywire but there are you know blood disorders i guess you could call them because it i don't know disorder doesn't sound like the right word but there's blood um i don't know another blood word. diseases <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's sickly blood types um, that have a lot of the RHs missing. So they do need blood from people who are also missing those types. So these people are considered the golden blood because their blood can be given to literally anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are also, because of this, constant, if they're known, um, publicly are constantly getting messages from people who want them to come and donate their blood uh, to, you know, save a baby or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like you got to fly around the world to donate blood all the time. Uh, So it's kind of an interesting moral like quandary, but they are also 
extremely sensitive to receiving blood. So a lot of, well, I say a lot of these people, like not many of them are actually known again. Um, but it's known that some of them donate blood to themselves and try to store it, which is crazy because blood can only last for like 42 days. Right. Uh, and you can only give blood every 56 days. So they have to figure out how to time it. Yeah. But how do they, we get this cycle working here? <laughs> they donate blood to themselves because if they ever needed blood, they would surely just die. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the weird thing is the RH proteins seem to have some structural integrity nature to them on the red blood cell. So having none of the RH proteins, their blood cells are very quick to degrade. So they also can't give blood as often as a healthy person. Yeah, so maybe their blood cells don't last the full 120-day cycle yeah, exactly. or whatever that a normal blood cell does. Uh, yeah, they just break down. So it's it's kind of an interesting, I don't know, blood type. Um, I had no idea that there were so many different blood types. And then I think... Like the ABO system, most everybody has heard about. Uh, but like when you come to chickens, or not chickens, when you come to dogs, dogs have like 13 blood types. I think, I think like chickens have like 60 or something. Yeah, because that goes back to their dinosaur blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's one of those things that's crazy. Well, um, yeah. The, and hearing you talk about this, like I've always known that so like my mom had two miscarriages before i was born and um they were both you know like late later term miscarriages um and it i know i've always known that it was as a result of a blood typing issue like this with her and that i know that her getting the shot um, when she was pregnant with me was like a pretty new thing, I guess in the early eighties. So I don't know if it was a shot that was derived from this Australian guy and I'm part of the, whatever, two and a half million babies that he's helped come into existence. But <laughs> yeah, I, it could be like, I, and I do know this, I do know this sort of lineage of my existence but i you know my family's never been super scientific when i was a kid so i didn't know if it was like my parents really understood what was all going on when the obgyn said okay now we're going to do these shots so you don't have a miscarriage this time yeah yeah it could have just been um that exact shot you know Mm -hmm. I, i mean i would imagine it is if it was a blood typing thing yeah it was probably something, if not this exact lineage, this exact guy's lineage, uh, or or what. I mean, he, this guy's really um, outpacing Jeffrey Epstein, if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, the 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 blood stuff that I looked up, um, I looked up more just like the functionality of what. Uh, red blood cells do and like why why they're kind of important um, lots of interesting things that I learned in this uh, so your blood in your body like 40 to 45 percent of the mass of your blood is red blood cells the other 
40 to 45 percent is plasma and then the small little bitty percentage is white blood cells and platelets um so most of everything that you're carrying around in your system is basically either water or red blood cells and the uh the interesting thing about the red blood cells is that like pretty much every vertebrate that has ever evolved utilizes this sort of same system the same system of getting oxygen to your body to your blood or through your blood getting oxygen to your muscles this is the way it works um now some are different like birds are slightly different and we've talked about this back with the last two dinosaur episodes because they had a their way of breathing wasn't just located to their lungs they also had air sacs and their bones also was part of their respiration so they could more directly get oxygen to the blood cells that were being generated in their bone marrow because their bones actually were part of the respiration process you didn't have to like create the blood cells in the bone marrow and then send them to the heart to get pumped to the lungs in order to grab a little bit of oxygen and then get flowed all throughout the body and that's why we talked about why dinosaurs had an advantage of getting really big because they had a much more efficient system of oxygenating their blood and spreading oxygen throughout their body we don't have that and pretty much all vertebrates other than birds and like one type of fish uh have have the system that we have now which is basically we breathe in lungs that's where we get all of our oxygen and then the blood is the blood cells are formed in our bone marrow then pumped through our vascular system through our lungs they the uh hemoglobin inside of our blood attaches to that oxygen and then that oxygen is carried throughout our body by those blood cells then when the blood cells exhaust the oxygen on them they collect carbon dioxide and other waste gases and then carry those back to the lungs and then when we exhale we exhale out the carbon dioxide and other waste gases that the blood cells brought back to us so it's a pretty efficient system um the interesting thing is there there's a lot a big evolutionary component to it so red blood cells are like all other cells you know they uh they start as a stem cell like a very a stem cell that can turn into lots of different things in the bone marrow but these stem cells have a have a plan to become red blood cells when they do that they form like most other all other cells like all eukaryotes they have a nucleus and they have a membrane and they have all the information that goes inside of that cell is all there all intact inside of the nucleus the dna information everything is all there um however it wouldn't be very efficient at carrying oxygen around your system if it was also having to carry around this big heavy nucleus and dna information and all of this other stuff plus there's also some downsides to having like a bunch of a a big map of your of your genetic information inside your blood cell because every time it replicates or every time one is made it has to take the whole library of your whole genome with it as in the information and so that really that clogs up the space inside the cell pretty quick if every single one had to carry all that information so there's been an adaptation through evolution where as the red blood cell 
forms in the marrow and goes through its initial cellular process, it has a nucleus. But as it matures before it's released into the vascular system, it loses the nucleus. And it becomes sort of this just sack of hemoglobin. And by doing that, it has created a maximum amount of space, one for the hemoglobin, but the hemoglobin's main job is to attract the oxygen. So if you eliminate a nucleus in a cell, you've created a big volume now to carry as much possible oxygen that can cling into that, into that red blood cell to move it around the body. So the reason this is important is that yeah, your vascular system is cool. It's like your heart. You think about your arteries. These are like big, super highways of pressurized blood flowing through them. You know, you can even like some of them are big enough where you can like stick your fingers inside of them. You know, they're, they're these are big tubes. Mm-hmm. It got yeah, I got hot blood pumping through it real fast. Um, then you get to like your your normal veins. Um, and you know, you've seen these inside your arm where you get like, uh, you know, an IV and things like that. And you can imagine, oh yeah, blood cells could easily fit through those tubes as well. But then the almost invisible to the naked eye and absolutely invisible to the naked eye at some scales, the capillaries that like extend to all of the extremities of the surfaces of your skin everywhere throughout your body to get that oxygen needing um, material to every single muscle, every sing- the tip of every single fingernail, all of those little capillaries. Um, well, a lot of those capillaries are so small in diameter that a blood cell is actually bigger than the diameter of the capillary. So how do you get the blood cell to get inside that capillary to take blood to the furthest reaches of the extremities of your body? Well, the blood cells have a trick of being able to be fat and sort of disc shaped looking kind of like a like a, a caved in drum, a sort of a torus shape on the around the outside with a caved in drum head in the middle. And then they have the ability to elongate and look like a cigar. And even when they go into the cigar shape, when they're carrying oxygen, like the oxygen is actually in some instances, bigger than the diameter of the capillary that it's trying to get into. But the squeezing, the squeezing of the of the blood cells into these cigar shapes and then squeezing, almost like extruding the blood into the capillaries like you're trying to squeeze toothpaste into them, um, makes it such that the oxygen-rich nature really gets in there. You really have to jam the oxygen in so even the smallest veins get a lot of oxygen content by this really uh, jamming the uh, jamming the play-doh through through the little mix, you know. And yeah. that that's that pressure that um, by having like no extra room for anything else to go maintains the oxygen content so that you can have the dexterity in your fingertips to play the piano or type on your keyboard and you can use all those muscles because now they're oxygenated and they're alive. Um, so I thought that was pretty, pretty interesting how evolutionarily we figure it in humans, you have an evolution of the cell type to get to this specific size that is unique to our, to our species that can fit into the specific size of the capillaries that are unique to our species that so that we can get the blood to the furthest reaches of all of our extremities in our body. And the, yeah, go ahead. 
I love the aspect of capillaries too. Like the blood pressure from your heart is massive. That's why your aorta is so thick so that it doesn't just pop. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this sort of talks evolutionarily towards, um, uh, we've mentioned it before, but giraffes. But that the, the engineering at the, without a designer of capillaries being so small and so various and so many reduces that pressure because they would explode (laughs) under the pressure like they wouldn't even exist it would just be like just you know one of those old 90s kind of squishy toys (laughs) suddenly just leaking (laughs) all over yeah 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 um but it's it's very cool that like that's the thing about blood that's so fascinating is it is everything is so like like it exists to heal itself and i don't know it's just a massively cool evolutionary system yeah and it's evolved um you know before mammals existed and we're just taking these have just been evolutionary adaptations at the cellular level to make it unique for each different species so like Red blood cells, the reason why you can't transfuse blood between animals and yourself isn't necessarily a blood typing issue. It's that their actual blood cells are different sizes than our blood cells. They're different because they evolved in their branch. Their blood cells work for their size capillaries and they are made by the bone marrow in their size bones. And so you can't just take an elephant's blood and put it inside of a human to save their life. You can't take like a horse's blood and put it in a monkey, even though and that's sort of the a lot of these discoveries were made, you know, like 300 B.C. (laughs) in in uh, in in Greece. Um, er, Just early studies of dissections of animals while they're alive one so you can see like how the heart works and that's how they first came up with these ideas of oh the the blood is like a constantly circulating system because before they were you know dissecting animals to figure this stuff out like blood was evident because people had battles and they cut each other open but the idea was like blood was like uh the life force so like when you go to sleep at night, it's because the reason you get sleepy is because all the blood drains from your brain and gets stored in your heart. <laughs> and then when you wake up, your heart sends the blood back to your brain and that means you're awake. And when you die, it means that you couldn't put blood back in your brain anymore. Like there, there, like, there was just this uh, repository of blood that sometimes moved around your body and wherever it moved around your body was the life force of your body. Aristotle uh, was such an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, interesting ideas. You, you got to have some interesting <laughs> ideas. It's, it's, it's sort of like, um, you know, uh, great sports analogy is it, it'd be fun if, uh, if, if you just did all the plays right the first time but there is an advantage into into playing poorly and running all the plays wrong, you know, because then you get to go back and look at the film and then you're like, oh, OK, now I know what we need to do. We, we messed all that stuff up. Now that I can see it on the film, I can come back and correct those things. So, Sounds like a Mavs fan. Yeah. So, so, yeah, exactly. But 
it's it's science. <laughs> like science is all about getting a bunch of stuff on tape that's obviously wrong, so people can be like, "That's obviously wrong." Now we're gonna try a different idea. Mm-hmm. So you know. We can shit on Aristotle, but someone had to put some wrong ideas down so that other <laughs> okay, people okay. could improve upon them. <laughs> Leave it to me. <clears throat> so, yeah. And like your red blood cells, that goes back to, you know, the blood typing that you were talking about earlier and the and the clotting and coagulation. Um, you know, there's a whole system that works with the with those those methods like your body since like we talked about in the senses series when you get a cut on your arm or even like a bruise in your body where just a blood vessel under the skin is damaged there's a touch receptor that knows whenever a specific spot on a specific vein has been compromised and then that vein will then have a response first where it constricts It gets that part of the vein where the damage is gets real tight. And so to allow like a less of a blood flow in that one area, but that alone won't stop the bleeding. So what first happens is then a bunch of platelets, which are, you know, sort of leftover cellular information that is floating around in your bloodstream. Those all coalesce and start to build a dam at the spot of the vein damage and then there's a lattice protein that comes and sort of binds them all together like a like a spider web to make sure that the they structurally stay together instead of like eventually falling apart and falling out of the hole and causing you to continue to bleed and then that clotting happens and then slowly uh, your your body goes back and repairs the damage to that vein, and then it stops being constricted, opens back up, and then you're you're fixed. Um, this all happens within like the matter of a few seconds. When when that signal gets to your brain that oh we need to send these we got to send these uh, reserves, send in the cavalry to fix this issue. <clears throat> now this causes a lot of problems for people who don't have the ability to necessarily. Uh, have this coagulation for one reason or another and this led me on to a crazy tangent about hemophilia because I've always been interested in hemophilia you know it's got a lot of historical precedents whether you're talking about the uh, the fall of the Russian czars or uh, you even just like the lineage of the royal the royal family from england as they when england was basically the primary power in europe in the 1800s and they were marrying off all of their daughters to all of the different rulers of the of different lands in germany spain france and russia they were offloading this uh this x-linked genetic trait all around the world to all the leaders of the world <laughs> to basically give them give all of their offspring hemophilia. And I, one thing I didn't know about hemophilia when I was starting to research this was that it that it is an X-linked genetic trait, which means that men, you know, we have an X and a Y chromosome. So if we get the X-linked inherited trait, that means that our X chromosome has the mutation for hemophilia meaning that we can we either don't uh don't create factor um seven or don't or don't create factor eight or don't create factor nine 
um, coagulation factors, which are basically clot the things that make you clot. Um, yeah, another name is uh, like von Willebrand's factor, right? Which is von Willebrand's disease comes from that name. <clears throat> so the uh, the interesting thing about being X-linked is it's similar to like my inherited retinitis pigmentosa, which is X-linked. Because it's X-linked, that means that pretty much the majority, like the vast majority, 99%, all appears symptomatic in males, not symptomatic in females, because females have two X chromosomes. So in order for a female to be a symptomatic hemophiliac and not just a carrier, she would have to have received both X's, an X from her father and an X from her mother that both had the genetic mutation in order to cause her to have an active symptomatic case of hemophilia, whether it's hemophilia type A or type B. Um, doesn't matter. She would have to have both. Both her exes would have to both have the mutation on them. And that's just rare. Like it would, you'd have to meet up a, a carrier female and an, a symptomatic father, and then they would have to have a baby, and then they would have to pass both their X-linked traits down into a female. And that's just the odds aren't with you there when that happens. But especially back then, having the symptomatic father make it that long in life. Exactly. To have kids. So the reason why this made it around and was like a royal disease was that they married off all the females <laughs> to all these different countries. And so the uh, like the reason why Alexei, the, the son of the Russian czar that was deposed in, uh, in the 1930s and the rise of Rasputin and, you know, all, all the, the wonderful Russia story of hemophilia... Wait, 1830s? 1930s. 1930s? 1917 was the revolution. 1917. Sorry. My fault. My fault. Okay. I just, you know, tattoo across my chest. Uh, <laughs> You're a big Dostoevsky guy. I forgot. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, like, that, their mother was a descendant of Queen Victoria and she's the one who was the original one who passed it on. But it doesn't just happen in Russia. Like in Spain, the queen has two sons and and this this happens in like the 1940s and they both die very young from just minor car accidents because they also carry the hemophilia active X-linked trait and so both the princes of Spain die from it. One of the one of the princes in Germany dies. And it's it goes straight back to this <laughs> this British lineage <laughs> of of one queen who then basically they uh, they offshot this they they traded their their legacy of hemophilia around the world mm-hmm. and so that that's like another interesting part about it is that when it, wherever it was discovered when. It was discovered in like America in the early 1800s and it was traced back to like one lady from one Pennsylvania like colonial settlement who was there in like the 1750s. And it was her offspring that had been passing down this active trait that showed up in all the male offspring from her original, you know, kid. Um, and that's really how they started to figure out some of like hemophilia is one of the ways people started figuring out 
genetics and like XY chromosome linked differences. It was hemophilia and colorblindness were like the first two big studies in trying to understand, oh, the mother brings half the genetic information and the father brings half the genetic information and then those are combined into a kid and then you can get certain things from each group. And of course that was all done without like the modern advent of genetic sequencing and stuff like that. It was done just from observational studies that were like, hmm, every little boy that <laughs> that comes from this family seems to scrape his knee and then die by the time he's five years old. That's kind of <laughs> weird. And there's even more like ancient um, references to hemophilia, you know, going back to like Ptolemy and the Egyptians and um, and stuff like that, where where it's like they're not specifically understanding what hemophilia is, but there is like, oh, well, we circumcised uh, by the time we get to the third brother, if the previous two brothers have been circumcised and they died from the circumcision because they bled out, the third brother doesn't have to get circumcised. <laughs> like, even if it's against our religious or mythological tradition, we make an exception because his two previous brothers died. So probably he'll die too if we circumcise. <laughs> yeah. The, the cool, not cool thing, but the crazy thing I think about hemophilia too is, um, what was that? Was it an M night Shyamalan movie? Uh, I think it's called the others like a horror movie. Okay. Um, one of the kids in that is a hemophiliac, but the, no, that's the one that M. Night Shyamalan got mad because it was made by someone else, but it ripped off Sixth Sense. Oh, okay. Well, it's better than any of his movies. Um, <laughs> that's the one with Nicole Kidman, right? And then they realize they're like ghosts living in the house when they thought they were living in the house and it was ghosts that were haunting them. Come on. Not everyone's seen this. Oh, this is well, a 2002 it's, movie. <laughs> Sorry, it's been 20 years. <laughs> um but yes, uh, but one of the, the ghost kids is hemophiliac, a hemophiliac. Um, and it is something that you you think, I mean, everyone experiences cuts on the outside of their body. Um, but we don't ever notice, obviously, the bleeding inside mm -hmm. if something ruptures or we, you know, pull something like working out. Uh, or any of those sort of damages on the inside. And that's typically what kills people with hemophilia. Yeah. Because um, internal bleeding... Hematomas, Bubba. You have no clue what's going on. Um, and so it's it's very interesting that it's one of those diseases, too, that, as you say, minor car accident that killed the two Spanish princes, they probably weren't even like bleeding externally right oh yeah no it's probably just bruising injuries. just like oh man like we would have oh man my back is sore my neck is sore from that whiplash i got yeah exactly well, the reason that is is because you had like blood burst in those muscle areas and now your body's working out the reason like it's sore is your you had like damage to those tissues and you had some like clotting and uh other, or, or uh blood you know dirty blood get out of the vascular system all in those areas and then your body has to work that stuff out and then you'll feel loose yeah. again 
But if you just never stop the the hematoma that's going on in the back of your spine because <laughs> you had <laughs> right. a, you had some whiplash, it's probably going to be bad news. Or in your brain, yeah. And that's I think that one thing um, with donating plasma is it can be given to uh, hemophiliacs because I think just giving them more platelets because in the plasma that's where platelets reside and electrolytes and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think that helps a little bit with hemophilia. I don't know if there's really drugs though, because it's yeah, just proteins, the right? Main drug, the main have. drugs that they do is directly injecting the missing factor into the person. So you basically mm. get like a transfusion of the missing clotting factor that you don't have. And this can make it so that you can have like a somewhat normal active life, but there still are going to be the downsides of... Even like you go riding bikes with your kids, you're going to do just some light, you know, tissue damage at your joints and things when you go through that process, just natural, you know, exercise and the amount of internal bleeding that like sort of pulls up in your joints can then cause long term problems like arthritis and, you know, you basically kind of get rigor mortis while you're alive um, yeah, you'd get arthritis like young, right? Yeah. Like maybe 20s or 30s. And so even if you're like constantly doing these factor infusions in order to make it so that you can move around and act normally, um, you have to be very on guard about like wrestling with your kids and all that type of stuff still. And so that's like always like the quality of life issue for people with hemophilia is, well... Would I rather have a shorter life that probably has a lot more pain in it later in, in, in the later stages of my life, but I got to do some stuff. I got to like, you know, wrestle with my kids and play with my dog in the park and, you know, go swimming and all those things. Or would I try, do I try to like have a zero activity lifestyle so I stay pain free for as long as possible, but what kind of life is that if I'm just like avoiding everything all of the time so it, it's it's a it makes it tough especially for like the the loved ones of people with hemophilia because you know then you're like am I letting my kids down because I'm not playing I'm not going and playing soccer with them or you know what's the trade-off am I letting my kids down by dying when I'm 35 years old because I went and played soccer with them yeah I know on uh like the <clears throat> news station that we the that we watch. Uh, do you remember Mad TV? Yeah. Um, Alex Borstein from that. Yeah. Uh, the voice. Show. The voice of Lois. Lois Griffin on Family Guy. Oh, is she really? Yeah. Oh. So you're just a big Mad TV head over here. Just Nothing just a, in everything Fox. <laughs> um, but yeah, she's she's like a spokesperson for the Great Lakes Hemophilia Foundation. Um, I think the the crazy thing semi-related to it is that clotting that occurs whenever a vessel breaks open, it is just the collagen fibers that are exposed touching the platelets that causes this cascade. Mm -hmm. Like, you never, especially with today's, like, 
beauty products and stuff you never imagine collagen does anything other than like <laughs> plumping you know <laughs> yeah exactly um but just by the platelet touching collagen it triggers this like clotting that then also brings in fibrin which is like a protein another one that's floating around in plasma yeah fibrin and is the lat is the lattice structure yeah. protein that creates the structure so the platelets know to stay together strong yeah, like sticks them all together, but then the fibrin also actively contracts the two sides of the vessel, the endothelial cells, until they touch so that they can repair. Um, what a crazy system. How did we get so lucky? <laughs> well, the the other the other crazy note on hemophilia, the last crazy note, is that until like the late 80s, um, most people with hemophilia, because the common treatment was getting these transfusions of the missing clotting factor that they had, those transfusions, um, the when they were sourced from people who had the clotting factor, those those sourcing was not subject to the same type of scrutiny as like normal blood transfusions are, and oh, even no. like to the even to the degree that they were at the time and like, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, so it was, it's very common up until like 1987 that if you had hemophilia, you were probably also going to end up with some form of hepatitis, some form of, or probably HIV, um, and, and other bloodborne illnesses that you can get through transfusion just because, Everyone needed the fa the coagulant factor so bad that it was just like, okay, we'll just grab it from anybody and put it in you. And everyone got a bunch of intravenous diseases transmitted to them. And so it was like pretty much it was just par for the course before 1987 that if you had hemophilia, you just accepted that you were also going to have uh, some form of hepatitis and eventually HIV. Yeah, likely uh, not a good disease to get. Yeah. Um, from what I've heard. Well, and hemophilia, I guess the good news is that it's uh, it's it's not contagious. Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 only genetically transmissible through through X-linked traits. So, um, it's one of those things where there there's. It's it's in the general population, and you can now you know get your you can get your genome mapped so you can know that oh if I have kids do I could I possibly pass hemophilia down to my kids, and they can identify this, and then there's ways around it like you can still actually have kids with your partner. They just you do it through IVF where they control some of that information about how the traits transfer over and you can have a kid that is free from the risk of ending up with the X-linked uh, trait for hemophilia. So that's like a positive in, you know, modern medicine. We can try our best to make sure that we don't continue to have children that have this um, genetic baggage. But the places where it still arises is in um, communities that are more sequestered like there's there's a specific isle like the the uh factor that you talked about is specific to an island off of off of finland where it's just a very small group of people and since there was 
you know, not as many mating prospects. Once you get this X-linked trait into the community, then, you know, cousins are mating with cousins and you just spread it amongst the population. Um, uh, so there, there's, and there's a few other sort of hyper localized populations that are very concerned about only, um, mating and only breeding with their, you know, direct, uh, relatives and direct sort of descendants to keep their bloodlines pure and things like that. And you see these type hemophilia is much more prevalent in those communities as well. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's noted as a, not not somebody who has it as a result of uh, inbreeding, but especially when it came to like the um, royal families, they're all, you know, they have a daughter and then they marry them back into the original family yeah. that the dad was from. Uh, but man, yeah, hemophilia is a weird one. Um, speaking of bleeding... Uh, I also looked up, I forgot to mention the difference between aspirin and ibuprofen. Ah, yes. Oh, this, this plays back to the hemophilia thing. So go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know if everyone knows this. Um, like I had this stuff, you know, drilled into my head over so many years. So it's just like my entire family comes to me to ask (laughs) which medicine to take for which thing. Um, and I'm, I'm not, you know an expert, I can just break down aspirin, ibuprofen, and acetaminophen a few times. But the these non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, um, very interesting, right? So aspirin, people know you can take like baby aspirin to, if somebody's had a heart attack, to try and reduce the rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think a ton of people know exactly why, um, unless they've looked it up. But the specific reason is there's two uh, two proteins that are cyclooxygenases. You have cyclooxygenase one and two. Uh, COX is what the shorthand for them is. So if I say COX one, COX two, that's mm-hmm. what I mean. Um, but it is essentially they catalyze the rate limiting step in the biosynthesis of prostaglandins, and prostaglandins are what cause the inflammation response, and aid in blood clotting. Uh, COX-1 is, it has uh, homeostatic functions, gastrointestinal tract, renal tract, platelet function, and macrophage differentiation. Uh, COX-2 only focuses on inflammation. And the actual structure of these two proteins is very identical, except COX-2 is a little bit more... Um, more flexible and it's got like a weird kind of side pocket where like a peptide chain is sort of broken open. So it's literally, again, just like the physical structure. As I've said, whenever I talk about proteins, it's the lock and key. Yeah. Um, aspirin, uh, older, older medicine, um, asper, it literally comes from the Latin word so you said there was not going to be any Latin. Oh, you found uh, some Latin to talk about during blood, <laughs> even though most of all the blood terms are Greek. But okay, you decided to go into a medical, into into a pharmaceutical, and you found some Latin. I have to. <laughs> um, it comes from the uh, Latin word asper, which means bitter. Um, and my my Latin teacher, or I guess professor in college, 
I never knew this um, or never did this, but it used to be a prank like in high school to put an aspirin under somebody's tongue if they're asleep because it is like the worst bitter taste mm-hmm. you will ever have mm-hmm. if it dissolves. Uh, sounds like fun. Um, just overdosing your friend. <laughs> but aspirin, the chemical structure of aspirin it can fit into both COX-1 and COX-2. Um, so it affects the COX-1 and COX-2 proteins. So that's why aspirin is considered a blood thinner because it not only helps with inflammation, but it reduces the likelihood for blood clotting. Um, and that's why they say don't take aspirin if you're going to have a surgery. Yeah. Uh, because it can cause problems. It's not like something they probably can't deal with, but you don't want them needing to suddenly (laughs) deal with extra bleeding whenever they've got you cut open. Right. So before you do ibuprofen, the rise of Rasputin in in the Russian court is specifically linked to aspirin because all of the medical or all of the doctors of the Russian court at the time that were trying to treat Alexei's hemophilia were giving him regular doses of aspirin in order to treat the hemophilia and you can explaining what you just did can see why that would be a very bad way to treat hemophilia (laughs) (laughs) and so rasputin was just like he didn't offer a different treatment he didn't like do some magical incantation that you know brought in some weird healing or mysticism in to heal alexi all he did was say what if we just don't give him aspirin? <laughs> and that made an immediate improvement to his condition. And so both his parents were like, yeah, fuck the rest of these royal court doctors. We're only listening to this guy. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's crazy how that stuff works out, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like the, 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 the part of one of the pivotal things that spurs on that Russian revolution is is whether or not we are going to give aspirin to our hemophilic child. <laughs> I love it. Um, it's like the wrong turn for the Archduke. Right. Uh, so ibuprofen was then developed. Um, ibuprofen is a bulkier molecule, uh, like in its structure. And by being bulkier, it then literally only fits inside of the COX-2 protein. Like it is it is just too bulky. The COX-1 is too rigid and narrow at like the activation site opening. Uh, the actual like parts of the activation site that it binds to and touches are like the same as aspirin in the COX-2. It's just that it's got a bulkier structure so it doesn't fit into COX-1 and only affects the inflammation um, in COX-2. So it's, it's, again, weird that all of this stuff comes down to literally just a few elements. Not even a few elements. It's just the arrangement yeah, of carbons the geometry. that causes the difference. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I like, I like ibuprofen. Um, <laughs> that's, that's what I take. What I take for my, my hangovers away. is ibuprofen. Yeah. Apparently, I mean, I was reading up all this and it's like acetaminophen is recommended over uh, either NSAID 
I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, that's. I don't need to. Trick you know, my that's brain. that's what I hear from my friends, especially the friends with kids who are like, "Yeah, I wish I could take Advil, but I got to take Tylenol." And I'm like, "Why?" And they're like, "Oh, you know, it's not great for if you're a new mother of a newborn who's breastfeeding and all the and uh, I, I guess okay, it makes makes sense, but." In my experience, I always feel like acetaminophen is just a placebo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not dealing with the source of inflammation. It's telling your brain it doesn't hurt. Right. And and I'm smarter than the part of my brain that tells me it doesn't <laughs> <Yeah>. hurt. <laughs> I'll outthink this medicine. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, the, the aspirin thing is very serious, though, like Ray's syndrome. Uh, if you give aspirin to a kid under the age of 12... Uh, sometimes I think 16 with certain factors, um, it'll kill them. Like oh, wow. it, it can, if they have a certain uh, genetic predisposition that aspirin, the way that it works in their body is it starts to cause uh, essentially like water buildup in their brain. Mm. And so it'll like, if, if, uh, that, I mean, if you read like an aspirin bottle, it'll, it has the warning on it, but you know, people don't really, especially with the name like baby aspirin. Yeah. Um, you should not be giving aspirin <laughs> to a baby. Um, but it is like pretty sudden because it like on a low dose will cause like um, the baby will or the child will become like irritable and kind of confused and then like slip into a coma. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so it's pretty bad. Well, um Basically, researching all this blood stuff, I found that we've got a whole lot more topics to cover that are adjacent, blood adjacent <laughs> topics that I felt like I was mm-hmm. going to get off on a million tangents. But since it uh, since it is spooky season, I did want to have a little bit of blood tie in to um, to to you know Halloween and different rituals and all that type of stuff. So I looked up was looking up, you know, the sort of mysticism around blood and why blood is considered so sacred and uh, the, the ritualistic nature of blood. And, you know, you start to do this research and it's like, okay, yeah, there are these like ancient peoples that did blood sacrifice and there's evidence that the Aztecs did all these blood sacrifice where they like took a st- took an beating heart out of the chest of a person and, you know, drained the blood out of it. And they, people drank blood to like take each other's life force on the battlefield and, you know, all these sort of things. And, uh, it's, it's interesting though, how, how sort of modernized many blood rituals have become and yet, and we still like participate them as if it's like, Oh yeah, this is like totally normal, modern behavior. (laughs) Cause you know, a lot of these, a lot of these sources I was reading would of course talk about like these ancient Greek Roman tribal, uh, type of blood rituals, but not many mention like the modern day blood rituals of sort of like, uh, just, taking communion at church (laughs) or, or, or the fact that uh, like even the religions, even modern religion now that we look on as being about like deeds and works and faith and those types of things are still very steeped in like blood sacrifice. Um, 
so you know whether whether it's a whether you're uh Muslim or your Christian, you have a history of blood sacrifice as the basis of like your religious un- underpinning. Um, and the the normativeness at which a lot of people in modern times look at that and is like, oh yeah, cool, I'm cool with those blood sacrifices. I'm cool with the, like those human human sacrifice for for my for my for my betterment is is it's kind of weird, you know, to where we're just still jazzed on human sacrifice as long as it's in these certain contexts. Um, <laughs> and, and not only that, we're, we're in order to like affirm how hardcore we are about human sacrifice. Uh, we're going to do a cannibalism ritual where we eat the bodies of the, <laughs> of the person who is dead. And we're going to do a thing where we drink the blood of those people because somehow that gives us a magic power. Um, you know the it always made sense to me if they had specified that it was like his skin, not his body, because I was like, this is a cracker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's transubstantiation, man. You you just haven't you have you're not a good Catholic. You don't understand how it works. <laughs> just a priest in the back grinding up the body of Jesus again. <laughs> well, and and so. <sighs> It's, it always struck me as strange, like as a child, it was not strange at all because this is just what we did. Like if, if in fact it was like, oh man, I'm kind of looking forward to when I finally get to, you know, eat the body of Christ and drink Christ's blood. Like that sounds like it's going to be awesome. I can't wait. And it's only like later in adulthood where you're like, that's, it's kind of weird that we're, you know telling people to eat other people and drink their blood and it's you know modern times we're still doing this <clears throat> i don't understand how did that come into christianity like when did they decide that that was part of it it's the it's the passover dinner so when G- before jesus is crucified oh, right. he's you know they're having dinner and before judas has betrayed him and he's like, uh, let's break bread. And he's like, whoever your bread is my bread is my flesh. Whoever eats this, you're with me. And then they and they like have a ritual where they're gonna dip the bread inside the goblet of wine, and that would be like everyone who's with Jesus is gonna dip the dip the body of Jesus inside of this cup. And that's when he knows that Judas is gonna betray him. Because he doesn't. Did Judas not do it? Yeah, I think I think the story is that Judas doesn't do it, or he. I forget exactly now that I'm thinking about the Passover dinner, but that's where it originates from. Is Jesus's sort of incantation that he gives over dinner about blood of my blood, flesh of my flesh. You guys are all going to do this with me. We're all we're all team Jesus, right? Yeah, but he put opiates in the wine <laughs> yeah he put now put on your white sneakers yeah, exactly exactly it, it was cyanide <laughs> <laughs> so yeah you've got those blood rituals but like um it makes sense you know blood for the longest time everyone understood it as like the life force or wherever you were you understood that if you lost blood you died um, so that was a pretty basic scientific observation that then you could extrapolate all of your, you know, mysticism on top of. And it is interesting how 
blood also becomes like a purity of lineage type of thing like pure blood like these people are of good blood these people are of bad blood these people their blood became bad because they intermixed with these these people from the other from another land and so now they've got bad blood because it got mixed up with the other people's good blood and like blood you know other than like typing it's not what what they're talking about is like the transmit transmission of genes if you're talking about like the actual scientific nature of like how the how this works and there it's it's interesting that you had a sort of colloquial understanding of how two people can come together and combine to make another person and then that person can continue the purity of that line by keeping it close enough so that when they come together and have an offspring it's going to be as similar as it was to their parents and forward even though the instrument at which they came to this deduction was blood and blood doesn't really have anything to do with the 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 genetic transfer of material um it's like you got the right idea but from a completely for completely wrong perspective <laughs> type of thing huh yeah i mean it you were talking about like the blood sacrifice and it reminded me to look up adrenochrome ah uh, yeah yesterday <clears throat> which sort of comes to like this modern uh yeah thinking that there's blood sacrifices and stuff um but i <laughs> so i was looking it up and it's apparently the the name chrome uh is not related at all to the element chromium um, it's related to the color of adrenochrome in its pure form, it's which we shiny. all know is deep purple. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but <laughs> apparently, like, the focus of it literally just comes from fear and loathing in Las Vegas. Oh, really? That's that. Yeah, that's like, the etymology. <laughs> Hunter S. Thompson came up with this idea. It's something that like they had known about. It's like the oxidized form of adrenaline. Um, so it's not even like like you would think adrenaline would be the thing, but no. When adrenaline is exposed to oxygen, then that's what causes it to, I don't know, get its mag magical powers. Yeah, but become becomes a youth book, serum. The Hunter S. Thompson, apparently, according to himself, which I don't really know much about this guy. Um, from what I can tell, he looks like somebody who would lie a lot. Uh, <laughs> but he said he came up with it and had no clue that there was anything in existence called adrenochrome. Um, well, it's before the internet. It might be true. <laughs> that time period doesn't exist. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like... In, in 1954, I mean, the Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, uh, the book came out in 71. So in 54, there was research on it. And uh, there was research that it was like a neurotoxic in another word that I'm not going to be able to pronounce. Essentially, like, just not good. Um, and they thought that it would play a role in developing schizophrenia or it would cause mm. schizophrenic episodes in people. 
Um, but that research apparently was like very limited, like very small groups, like 15 people. Um, so nothing significant, but it's currently, you know, come back into vogue, um, with like QAnon people that think, I mean, QAnon is amazing. Like they're (laughs) mental gymnastics that they think the reason so many politicians and elites were getting coronavirus is because a white hat tainted their adrenochrome supply, Mm. except adrenochrome can only come from like fresh living children. And so then you would, it would. So they gave the children COVID and then took the adrenochrome out of them. Yes. But then (laughs) Trump gets COVID. So somebody's trying to kill him, but not by tainting the adrenochrome. Yeah. So, well, someone was trying Um, to frame him that he was taking adrenochrome by giving him COVID. Yeah, they probably gave him a fake COVID just to make it look like he was in on it. Yeah. Um, but insanely, adrenochrome is um, available to purchase. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can buy 25 milligrams for $55. Um, it's not approved for use uh, by the FDA, but there's some other countries that do actually prescribe it. And it essentially is like a stops bleeding a little bit like it can be used to help treat bleeding in some patients um it's used to treat like uh in india specifically this is i was reading a list uh like blood in the urine or uh, retina hemorrhage in your eye or nosebleeds uterine bleeding and pre-operation um but, but it's great as i was reading this a lot of these like conspiracy theorists had bought adrenochrome to be like, oh, I got to see what this, yeah. um, you know, see what, what ground what up little called? children look like. <laughs> well, <laughs> like they think that it, it, that elites love it. It's their favorite drug and it's used in blood sacrifices, but that it's a, a psycho. What, what's the word like mushrooms or LSD? Oh, like psychotropic psychedelic Psycho, psychedelic. There we go. Um, but they've taken it and just described it as like a terrible, a terrible headache for like. I took seven the days. entire bottle. <laughs> so yeah, it has like no actual physical properties. But I found that pretty funny that, you know, they think it's this thing that's like in blood, but it's not in blood. <laughs> See, I thought they that you were gonna tell me that this is somehow like the source of, you know, when uh, they always say like, when a mom sees like her kid get hit by a car and it's like trapped under the car and like a mom suddenly gets that like crazy adrenaline strength and she can lift an entire car off her child Mm -hmm. and i thought that you were going to say that's what adrenochrome is when like we get these like superhuman powers for a few seconds to to do something because we see it we we know we have to act but i guess that's not what it is much like hunter s thompson it just sounds like a cool name Well, the only other uh, the only other spooky bloody notes that I had was on uh, Bloody Mary. You ever you ever do Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary? I don't know. I feel like I did once. Um, but yeah, have you? Oh yeah. Oh Seems yeah. Seems like you do it like every night. Yeah, yeah. It was when I was in Catholic school. It was a big thing to uh, we. So we had we. Our homeroom was like in a portable building that was uh-huh. just off the campus. The campus 
was an old um, nunnery. Um, and so it was like, it had like barracks in it where the nuns used to sleep and stuff. And it was, you know, had the chapel. And then it was like a old building that had like three stories in it where they had classrooms. So it, it already felt like a haunted place. <laughs> it was already like kind of a creepy haunted, haunted place. Um, yeah. and, uh, in the, uh, in the portable bathroom, uh, you, it was like a one in one out bathroom, but they wouldn't allow anyone to lock the door. Like it, they took the lock off the door so you couldn't like lock yourself in the bathroom. I don't know if it's cause they lost the key to the door or it was because they were worried. We were like seventh graders jacking around in the bathroom and you know, they wouldn't allow that or what it was. But um, when people would be in the bathroom, the, the running gag would be to reach your hand in the door and turn the lights off and then scream bloody Mary, bloody Mary as many times as you could before <laughs> the person would start to panic and freak out. <laughs> is it, is it referring to Mary? Like, so there is bloody Mary who's like the historical figure, um, but I don't think that the the etymology of the Bloody Mary uh, game where you say it in a mirror, it seems to not be related to her at all. Um, it's uh, the I, at least from my reading, the idea is that way back in the 1800s in England, it originated where if you held a handheld mirror and a candle, and this is a woman. A woman holds a handheld mirror and a candle, and she walks up the stairs of her house backwards. And every time she takes a step, she says "Bloody Mary." By the time, like eventually, when she gets to the top of the step and she looks in the mirror, she will see the face—a glimpse of the face of the man she's going to marry. Now, sometimes you won't see the face of the man you're going to marry. You'll see the face of a dead old bleeding woman and that uh-huh. would mean that you're gonna die before you get to marry anyone so mm. that was sort of like the litmus test am i gonna get married to a handsome guy or am i gonna be a spinster and i'm gonna die before i get a chance to get married and that's kind of where at least that seems like where the ori- origin of saying bloody mary into a mirror in the dark because like back then and i always understood it as like you say it three times or sort of like um you know, Freddy Krueger or Beetlejuice or whatever. Uh, yeah. But this seems to indicate that you say it 13 times, which that seems a little bit, you know, I'm going to get bored after I said it the sixth time. So why are we <laughs> going to say it 13 times? Wait, you have to have 13 stairs, though? I guess that means that maybe that 13 steps was like a common number of steps to go from the first floor to a second floor in a London flat or something. I don't know. How many... How many inches up is a step? Um, we can do this typical math. now. They're they're like seven and a half inches. Rise yeah, over that run. Yeah, makes sense, right? Huh? That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. You get about like nine and a half, ten feet. Yeah, something like there that. You go. <laughs> so maybe that's where it's from. But uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about when I was doing the research, I'm gonna look it up again. Um, when I was looking this up, the uh, they talked about how this has a very um, close relative partner ritual 
in Japan called Hanako-san, and I don't know if you ever heard of that. Uh, I'm going to have to look this up. Spell it for me. H-A-N-A-K-O space San, S-A-N. Uh, uh, the, the thing is, no, I don't know what this is, but... Um... Yeah, the uh, the toilet of Hanako. <laughs> so this is a thing that uh, I guess uh, mostly like uh, Japanese girls do, and uh, it's it's like uh, the Bloody Mary ritual. But you go into the bathroom, and you like knock on the third the door of the third stall down and say Hanako-san's name a few times, and then if she responds, she'll reach out of the stall with a bloody hand and grab you and pull you into the toilet. Um, but like there's different, uh, there's different stories on the etymology of it. The primary one is that, um, she was a girl who was playing hide and go seek, uh, during world war two. And she was hiding in a bathroom stall when an, uh, when an air raid happened and she got blown up. And so this is her spirit now haunts all the girls' bathroom stalls in Japan. Um, uh, so <laughs> I just thought, I, I just wondered if uh, you had ever come across uh, girls screaming Hanako-san in the bathroom when you were in, uh, in Japan. But maybe, maybe ask no. Miho if she's, if she's ever done it. <laughs> yeah, I never uh, worked in a school, so... Um. <laughs> And the after-school English whatever that I taught was uh, not that populated. But yeah, I'll have to ask Miho. Uh, it says here, too, that um, it's been used in the show Gegege no Kitaro, which is a... Uh, I would describe it as, like, the Peanuts, like that level of popularity in Japan. Okay. Uh, so it's, like, pretty well-known. It's... it's uh, comic book that was like in the newspaper it's been there for oh geez i think it's over 50 years um yeah it the cartoon or comic book started in 1960 um so it's been around for quite a while but it's that comic is actually from like the guy who made it lived in the town that miho's from so they've got like the different characters around and okay. it's essentially like a like a goblin boy that he has like a bunch of uh yokai like um little monster little little demon friends yeah of course a demon comes out that's trying to cause problems for someone so him and the good demons stop them from doing it um they've got quite a few cartoons as well they've actually revamped a new one so it's, it's not that bad of a show if you're looking for something to watch Halloween yeah I wonder if that's how it tied in because like another part of the Hanako-san mythology is that if she responds to you she can drag you down the toilet to hell (laughs) yeah yeah. she'll grab your arm and just suck you down the toilet and you'll be in hell with her um I mean she's yeah that sounds like a flower child (laughs) so anyway those are those are the spooky bloody things. So uh, this this weekend, uh, say some bloody marys in a in a candlelit mirror, or uh, go knock on a stall door and ask for Hanako-san. See what happens. Yeah, or uh, 
prick your finger and mix it with your spouse's blood to see if you have. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Dude, become become blood, blood brothers with your spouse and see see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, yeah. That was the other blood brother thing. Uh, how many people must have gotten like bloodborne diseases from scratching open their palm with a rusty blade and like shaking hands with their with their enemy to, you know solve a treaty over over, over certain lands <laughs> i mean what was uh i know corn pop at least got one yeah those rusty blades yep 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 i never i never became blood brothers with any of my friends me neither oh we'll do it okay when whenever whenever we finally meet in person we'll have to do a blood brother handshake that's there we go that's a promise we make to you the listener <laughs> <laughs> i'm excited All right, Eric, until next week. Bye.